0: To Light Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. All right, we are starting back with our TMT. If, you don't, if you've not been here before, you don't know what a TMT is. It's a two minute teaching, training. Sometimes we do missions, travels, reports um, at this time as well. But uh, we're going to welcome Brent Van Andel to come up, and he's going to do a TMT for us on someone from Christian history.
1: Thanks, Steve. So this morning for our TMT, I would like to continue our Belong series by looking at a man named Mong Ondong who lived in the Philippines. Now, during his earlier years, Mong was the captain of a ship and made frequent trips to Malaysia. At that time, his friends described him as violent and ferocious. He was a Proud man with many enemies. He even spent some time in prison for homicide. Now, after many years of such harsh living, he ended up isolated and alone, living in a small bamboo hut. His family had shunned him, and he had very few friends. Then one day, his life changed completely when Typhoon Odette hit the Philippines on December 17, 2021. He was eating dinner at a small table in his hut, and a coconut tree came crashing down on his house. He was left with no place to live and no one to turn to. His doctor at that time was Luke Society Director Susie Cowan. She organized members of the church he had been attending sporadically and they started on the task of rebuilding him a, a new home. Now, when this group of people started rebuilding Mang's home, his friends and family questioned them. They said, why are you doing this? He's such a, a mean man. He doesn't deserve this. But they were committed to showing him Christ's love. And because of this, Mon Andung started attending the church more regularly and eventually he became a Christian. His life was radically transformed. We have a a picture of the, it's a little bit hard to see, but on the the top picture is a picture of his hut with the coconut tree, and then a group of people from the church who rebuilt his home, his new home there, and then finally a a picture of him sitting at his uh, new table in his new hut. Now I had the opportunity to meet him on a trip to the Philippines this past September. And his simple testimony touched my heart. When asked where he was going to be when he died, he said, heaven, I know because now I have Jesus in my heart. Well, shortly after that, Meng Andong did die. Less than four weeks later, he was found lifeless in his hut, presumably from a cardiac arrest. But this is not the end of the story. During the services and activities that followed his death, Dr. Susie and her team were able to minister to his friends and family, the same friends and family that previously shunned him. More than 20 people accepted Jesus during these meetings, and now they're now meeting regularly at the house of one of Meng's nieces for Bible studies. So his death paid the way for others to have life. So during our Belong series, we've learned about many of our brothers and sisters who've lived in the past, who've lived all around the world. And Mong Andong is one of those individuals. Angels rejoiced when he accepted Jesus into his heart, just like they rejoice when each one of us accept Jesus into our hearts. Mong Andong belongs because of what Jesus did on the cross. Just like each of the other individuals we've studied belong, just like each of us belong, not because of anything we've done, but the because of the victory Jesus has given us over death on the cross. Paul Olson will read our scripture this morning.
2: Today's scriptures from Matthew chapter two, verses one through twelve. Uh Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's Word.
0: How many of you ever felt like an outsider before? Of course you have, because we all went through middle school, right? our middle schoolers you know what this means somebody you know some somebody gets mad at you leaves you out of a party leaves you off of the invite list or maybe it goes all the way back to elementary you know where we used to pick teams it's one of the most vicious things that happens in elementary school you're picking teams and and somebody doesn't want you on the team right you're not good at that particular sport so you get left out it happens it stinks It's really rough. And even as adults, we're still keenly sensitive to this, aren't we? Like we never grow out of the desire to be included. We never get used to being left out of things. Sometimes if our extended family plans an event and we're like, hey, they didn't consult me. Doesn't feel good, right? Doesn't feel good to be left out. Sometimes maybe you're scrolling on Facebook and you see that old friend group and they got together, took a trip or did something cool together. And you're like, where was my invite? Why didn't they call me? What's, what's up? You know, why am, I, why am I on the outside? Never feels good. Nobody likes being an outsider. But did you know that God's really actually sensitive to this too? God is, in fact, a God of the outsider. Remember, there's a time when God's people were just one nation, the Jews, the Hebrews, everyone else, outsiders. And then Jesus came along and changed everything. In Jesus, God blew the doors open to his party. He said, now everybody is welcome. He expanded the guest list to include everyone. He sent invites to every single address. Of course, this is really good news for us Christians because most of us were not on the original guest list. Most of us were not part of the original in crowd, you understand. Most of us are Gentiles. and the season of the church where we celebrate the fact that the Gentiles that we're invited in is called Epiphany. That's the season of the church that, we just are, that we're just entering this week. It actually happens on January 6th, but we're celebrating it today because we don't have an Epiphany service. Now, I'll be honest, I never knew what Epiphany was growing up. I didn't even know it was a thing in, in the church, and I grew up in the church. Um, I'll be even as brave as to admit I made it all the way through seminary without having much of an idea what Epiphany was about. But did you know that Epiphany far outshone Christmas in the early church? I didn't know this. I mean, this is fascinating to me. Um, In the early church, there were three big holidays, Epiphany, Easter, and Pentecost. Christmas was kind of a later edition. But Epiphany was a really, really big deal. And the word epiphany means an appearance or manifestation, particularly of a divine being or an illuminating discovery, saying about the light today, especially one that comes unexpectedly. So epiphany marks the first manifestation of Jesus to the Gentiles. It signals God's love is for the Gentiles too, not just for the Jews. That God's plan of salvation includes the Gentiles too. So you might call epiphany a holiday or a feast for the outsiders, a feast for the outsiders. So today we're looking at the epiphany to the magi or the wise men, a group of outsiders who have an awful lot to teach us. And so we're just going to answer one simple question today. We don't have a lot of time together. And that question is, who were these guys? Ever wondered that? Who were these magi? And, and looking at what do they teach us by these three things, by these three observations? Now, there's a couple of general observations I want to make about them before we get going. First of all, we don't really know very much about the Magi. The text actually doesn't tell us a lot about them. Most of what we feel like we know about the wise men or the Magi comes from tradition or hallmark, probably, right? So so you have a lot of ideas about the Magi, but really the text doesn't tell us a whole lot about them. Second thing is, they were not at the nativity scene. I really love our kids' Christmas pageant. No wise men there. It's accurate, right? a lot of times you'll see in a kid's Christmas pageant, there's wise men that come up, and they're at the manger with the shepherds. No, the shepherds were there. The wise men come in later. No magi at the nativity scene. Uh, Most scholars think that Jesus was anywhere from a few weeks to two years old by the time the magi get to them in Bethlehem. We see that they're in a house now. They've already gone to Jerusalem for Jesus' dedication. Remember the Simeon story? So time has elapsed before the magi get to meet Jesus. Um, Third, we don't know how many there were. And even this week as I was studying, I was like, wait, there's three of them, right? There's three of them. There has to be three of them. We three kings, you know, we've sung about this our whole lives, but actually the text does not tell us there were three. Um, What we know is that there were wise men who came from the east, verse 2, to Jerusalem, or verse 1. So um, there's more than one, but less than a million probably. That's what we know about the Magi. Um, But In the writing of Christmas carols, it doesn't work as well to say an undeterminate number of Magi went, you know, like just three kings just fit better, so we're sticking with three. It was deduced because they obviously brought three gifts, but of course two people could bring three gifts, and ten people could bring three gifts. There's no, there's no, there's nothing in the text that tells us how many Magi there were. So there's plenty of mystery around these guys, but there are some really plain things that we can understand about them from the text. And of course, when we're studying the Bible, the plain things are the main things, all right? And so we're going to look at three things that these magi were. They were serious seekers. First of all, they were outsiders, and they were worshipers. Serious seekers, outsiders, and worshipers. So here we go. First of all, they're serious seekers. Now, the translators of of our Bibles actually have a difficult time with the Greek word here for magi because it can have several different meanings. It can mean uh, wise men, obviously, astrologers, astronomers, but it can also mean magician or sorcerer. In reality, what the wise men were was a sort of scientific theologian or a theological scientist. They were looking at the stars, observing the movement pattern of the stars, but looking and asking God what the particular meaning of that movement was. So they're looking for guidance from the divine um, in the patterns of nature and the stars. And so they're asking these big questions. They're serious seekers. They have inquisitive minds. They want to know, how does it all fit together? And maybe you're a person like that. Maybe um, you're studying different philosophies, different religions. You're asking about, uh, you know, the big existential questions in your life. That's fantastic. You're a great fit. You're just like the Magi. The Magi were obsessed with finding the truth, something that I find is actually quite lost in our time. Um, You understand that our culture in the West is one of the very first cultures in all of history to have the basic premise that says, or the basic philosophy that says, whatever you believe to be true for you is true somehow. It's, it's something that would get you laughed out of the room in most cultures around the world, and for sure through all cultures throughout history. Like, what do you mean everything you believe to be true is true for you? How in the world does that work? Like, so you believe you're a millionaire? Does that make it true? Of course not. It just makes you a little less sane that you believe something, it doesn't make it true. But in our culture in the West, we say, well, that, that's what you believe, that's true for you, but this is true for me. And the Magi just weren't like that. They set a very different, different example for us. They're looking for the truth. They believe the truth is out there if they search for it diligently and aggressively. So they're going after the truth. Now, how serious do they get about finding the truth? Well, some scholars estimate they traveled over 800 miles probably by camel. Again, we don't know what they were traveling by. To get to Bethlehem, 800 miles. Now, I have never traveled by camel, actually, Um, but let's just say you got a good, sturdy camel that can do like 20 miles a day. This would have been 40 days of traveling one way, and then obviously you got to go back. So like 80-day commitment here. Can you imagine the conversation with their wives? They're like, Honey, I'm going to go on a little trip. Oh, is it a business trip? Well, not exactly. You know that Tuesday group I have with the guys where we look at the stars and stuff? You're going with them? What are you doing? Well, we, we found this star, and it's a special star. and We're going to follow it. You're going to follow a star? How long are you going to be gone? Uh, you know, I don't know, 80 days? It's not going to go over very well. That's a big commitment, right? That's a big commitment for these guys. They were serious, serious seekers. Now, there's a really big contrast here in this text. Look at verse 4. The Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, when King Herod is like, everybody's getting all up in arms because they're asking about this new king, born king of the Jews. And Herod asked them, where is this new king prophesied to be born? Well, they got the right answer right away. They take them to Micah 5 2 They're like, oh yeah, it's Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem. And they quote it perfectly. But they have absolutely no interest in walking the five miles down the road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Here's these Gentiles, right? These outsiders that, that are willing to go 800 miles. Think of that old Scottish song, I would walk 1,000 miles just to fall down at your door. These guys would go 1,000 miles to find the truth, to find the king. And here's these religious leaders that are like, yeah, it's Bethlehem. Not interested. Not going. What a contrast. The Magi were just the opposite. There was no price too great to pay. No distance they wouldn't travel. They wanted to find the new king they wanted to find the truth. So I'm wondering, how are you seeking the truth today? I have to be honest with you. I find in our culture, there's a lot of lazy doubters out there, right? Maybe you've noticed this too. Just a lot of lazy doubters. Most people, when you ask them about the big questions in life, when you ask them about their belief in God or their belief about what happens to you after you die, they can produce some sort of a reasoning or some sort of a doubt. A lot of them point to what we talked about last week, the problem of evil. Well, I just couldn't believe in a good God who's powerful if he lets all this evil and suffering going on. Okay, fine. But the more you poke and prod, the more you find out they really haven't thought about it much. They really haven't put a lot of time and effort into it. They're kind of lazy doubters. I love that the Magi are anything but lazy. They're seekers. They're diligent They're putting the emphasis on the right syllables. They're prioritizing the most important questions in life. I think when it comes to Christianity, of course you have questions. You believe in a God you can't see physically, who came to earth, became a baby, lived, died, and rose again from the dead so that you can be forgiven. All of that stuff is very hard to believe, you understand. So if you have questions, obviously that makes sense. But ask Seek, knock, think about it. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 8, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Don't be afraid of the questions. That's what the Magi are doing here. And they're rewarded in the end with finding the one who is himself the truth. So the Magi are serious seekers and they teach us to do the same. But secondly, as I mentioned in the intro, the Magi are big time outsiders. They're outsiders. The Magi are not Jews, and therefore they're of a particular point of interest in Matthew's gospel, who is, who is writing for a primarily Jewish audience. Remember, Matthew's writing for Jews. That's why he includes so many prophetic things and, and, and the, so many things in Jesus' life that are, the, that are the fulfillment of prophecy. So we think of these Magi as astrologers because they're observing the stars, and being an astronomer or astrologer was a learned occupation However, from the perspective of the Jewish people, the Magi are looking to the stars for answers that legitimately only come from God. So that's strike number one against them. But also, as I mentioned, the word Magi is used elsewhere in the scriptures to mean sorcerer, magician. Acts 8 and Acts 13, where it's translated actually magician or sorcerer. So from the perspective of the Jewish people, the Magi work magic with demonic powers. Right? They are people far from God not anywhere close to the Jewish belief system. And so this makes them extremely useful for Matthew's purposes as he's showing how the Messiah brings salvation even to the Gentiles, even to the Gentiles who are sorcerers and magicians. So in this way, the Magi represent God making good on some of his oldest promises. Remember God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis? What did he promise to Abraham? said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. But he also said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. All the nations of the world. This is it. This is what's happening. God's blessing to the whole world has finally come in Jesus. And look what's happening. The nations are coming. Immediately, the nations are coming. I think it's so significant to note that Matthew's gospel starts with the Magi coming to Jesus. But it ends, or pretty much ends, with the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, go there make disciples of all nations, all ethne. So it starts with the nations in the beginning, it ends with going to the nations in the end. Matthew's saying throughout his gospel, like look, God's heart is for the nations. That's how he bookends his gospel. Isn't that what we see here? In the Epiphany to the Magi, we see God's heart for all nations. And remember, by nations, I don't mean other nations beside the USA. I mean other nations besides Israel, which includes us, right? Just quick survey. How many of you are Jewish in here? We don't have anybody. Susan, I know we talked about this last week. Susan's one, like 100th Jewish, maybe. 1% Jewish, okay? And I'm a little tiny bit Jewish, too, so we're covered either way. Um, but for the rest of us... This would be a very big problem, right? That we're all Gentiles in here. None of us are Jewish. We're on the outside of God's plan. So these guys clearly show us that the Gentiles are not an afterthought for God, but they're part of God's good plan. Look, look how God uses them. They're even involved in thwarting Herod's evil plan to destroy Jesus. They throw him off the path. They don't go back to Herod. They hear from God in a dream and they go back a different way. So immediately after God introduces them to the Savior of the world, their Savior too, he involves them in mission in thwarting Herod's plan. It's pretty cool stuff. This is a really big deal for us, friends. The epiphany to the Magi broke open, broke down the wall between Jew and Gentile, opened up God's plan of salvation to the whole world. Now, obviously, the Christian church, we don't talk about Jew versus Gentile very much anymore because the church is vastly Gentile now, right? Right? Um, so that 's not a distinction that we make, but epiphany is still a really important time for us to think about the outsider because the outsider is still very much on god 's heart and it 's still very much a problem for us to think through who is it in my mind that I think is unworthy of god 's love? We talked about this in, in bringing covenant members. who do I think shouldn 't be adopted into god 's family? Who do I not want to be adopted into god 's family? What do they look like? What do they think like what particular sin struggles do they have? What political views do they have? It doesn't take very long, and you can get there in your minds, right? That person shouldn't belong. That person shouldn't be included in God's great plan. Epiphany is the time where we examine our hearts and we think about it. We say, who is God asking me to extend his welcome to? Because he's the God of the outsider. He wants them invited in. The Magi teach us that God's love is wide open to the people we would often be most hesitant about. All right, so we see, first and foremost, the Magi, are, they're serious seekers. They're outsiders. But finally, we see that they're worshipers. You know, once the Magi come to Bethlehem and find Jesus, after they made the wrong stop in Jerusalem, of course, that was an obvious mistake that the, anybody could make. They thought he was a king. He should be at the palace, right? He should be in Jerusalem. But then they come to Bethlehem, finally. You think, these guys have been nerding out on this whole star and this whole tracking him thing for a long time, right? They've, they've ridden a long ways to see him. You think they're going to pepper Mary and Joseph with questions and stuff, but no, their response is perfect. Once they finally come face to face with the divine, this is what they do, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They fall down to their knees and worship him. Remember, this is a little boy, you know, two years old or younger, right? Especially when children just didn't have much esteem in that culture. This would have been such an odd thing for these wise and wealthy men. They just fall down and worship him. They don't ask any questions. They don't even ask to find out his name. They know who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the promised king of the Jews. And look, their gifts even reflect this. They don't bring child-friendly gifts, right? They get an F for their child-friendly gifts. If if people show up to your kid's party and they're turning one or two and they bring any of this stuff, you're like, no, man. You don't, I mean, they're not going to get it. Uh, My kid Dawson turned five, or, or for Christmas, he's five. He got some money in an envelope and he was like, what? I'm like, no, 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 that's like the best gift, buddy. Like, that's a great gift. He's like, it's not a dinosaur. You know, like, I don't know what to do with this. What am I supposed to do with it? I'm like, no, that's a good gift. A gold bar, no meaning to a kid, Right frankincense not a good gift but they they can see past his child likeness to his true identity right that's why they bring him these gifts they give him gold a gift fitting for a king frankincense a gift used by priests in the temple to worship god suggests his divinity and lastly they give him myrrh a really strange gift for a baby you know myrrh was used as a perfume but it's also used as an embalming liquid imagine showing up to a baby shower here's a jug of embalming liquid That'd be pretty weird, wouldn't it? Not exactly the thing you want to bring, but this foreshadows that Jesus would soon die for the sins of the world, that he would be buried. Remember, on the cross, Jesus was offered mixed wine with myrrh, according to Mark's gospel. And in John's gospel, we see that myrrh and aloes are brought for his burial by Nicodemus. So, on top of their deeper meaning, we also need to note these gifts were very, very expensive and likely bankrolled the trip that Mary and Joseph would soon have to take to escape Herod. So God's providing for them here. There's lots going on in these gifts from the Magi, but perhaps the biggest thing we need to recognize here is that these Gentiles really get it. Don't they? They just get it. Like anyone who comes to worship Jesus must treasure him above all else. It's that simple. They must even be willing to part with their earthly treasure in order to gain the treasure that's worth infinitely more. The Magi understood that. It was this automatic response they had. They fall down to worship, and then they immediately open up their treasure, like, here, here, Jesus, take it all. Like, we want to give you all of our most expensive stuff. Pretty cool example for us. I'm wondering today, friends, if Jesus is your treasure. You know, according to the Gospels, this is one of the ways that you know that you're a Christian. If you feel like in Jesus you found treasure. Jesus is that buried treasure in the field that someone finds. They go sell everything they have to go buy it. Same thing with the pearl of great price. It's it's a no-brainer. right? You're like, I'll give anything if I can have that. If I can have Jesus. If he, he is my greatest treasure, so much so that I'll easily part with anything else in my life. We know that this passage certainly speaks to us about our money here. And you'll remember in the Gospels, there's the rich young ruler who, he couldn't be a disciple of Jesus because he couldn't part with all his wealth. Maybe that's us today where we're saying, look, I want to treasure Jesus, but I have a hard time. You know, the rich young ruler essentially couldn't shift his treasure from his monetary wealth to Jesus. He couldn't shift what he was treasuring, so he ended up holding on to his money. Is that a problem for you today? Can you shift your treasure from the stuff that's flimsy, from the stuff that's going to pass away, to the thing that can never be taken from you? You Maybe for us, our struggle is giving Jesus our time. Now, Time, you could argue, is an even bigger treasure in our culture than money. To be time-rich is certainly a beautiful thing. But Christians believe that every moment, every breath that we have, belongs to King Jesus. How are you showering him with the gift of your time? You know, maybe it's just worship and time and prayer and adoring him. Sometimes that feels like a waste of time. But also the things that he would ask you to do in service. Sometimes those are very humbling, very simple, very um, unnoticed kinds of things. But can you love, can you adore, can you worship King Jesus by just showering him with the gift of the precious resource of your time? For others of us still, it might be something hard that Jesus has asked us to do. Is Jesus worth giving up the treasure of your comfort or the treasure of your easy life? I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. I count them as garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've I've considered all things rubbish in order that I may gain Christ seems that the Magi understood this when they kneeled before the God who became a child. They understood it. They got it. I'll give up anything for this treasure to have this one. Where are you at with treasuring Jesus today? Brothers and sisters, the Magi came to Bethlehem with all the treasures of the earth in their hands, but they left with the greatest treasure of the universe in their hearts. The biggest question for us today is, Will that be your story as well? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we would invite you. You don't need any gold, frankincense, myrrh, or anything else. You can come and receive that great treasure today. There'll be people up here to pray for you. I would just urge you, don't wait another day. It will cost you everything to follow him, but you'll get everything that matters, right? It's epiphany. All outsiders are welcomed in, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the example of the Magi. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be diligent seekers. That you would help us to pursue the truth in you uh, with all of our might. We pray that you would help us to be a church that welcomes the outsider as you welcome them. To always have a heart for the nations and for the outsider, for those who do not know you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to treasure you above all else. That there would be nothing rivaling you for the throne of our hearts. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.